0: Again, the usual formulaic introduction. Uh, Our next speaker needs no introduction, or should need no introduction. Uh, John Carey is in the uh, the Department of uh, Early and Medieval Irish in uh, University College Cork, and he has published uh, extensively on all areas of uh, medieval Irish language and literature. And uh, his most recent uh, publication is in the uh, uh, Brephold's Corpus Christianorum uh, Apocryphal series. Uh, in addition, and translation and uh, uh, commentary on the uh, uh, text, uh, the Tenga Bithnua, the uh, ever new tongue. So he's going to talk to us today about H and his world. Thank you, Liam. When Rodrigo McCoy said yesterday, in the wake of Elizabeth Duncan's meticulously argued challenge, to the received wisdom concerning H, that I would now have to change my title. This was, of course, an understatement. Potentially, I would need to change a good deal more, perhaps to the extent of giving a paper that is seven times as long. <laughs> I do not think, though, that a hasty exercise in face-saving damage limitation on my part would be an adequate response to her radical thesis. Or indeed, do it add much to our understanding generally? What I am offering is, accordingly, a sort of pre Duncan time capsule, in which the H whom I evoke as a single individual may simply be shorthand for the postulated collectivity, which, at a couple of points in her own talk, Beth described as different scribes in the same school. This obviously leaves several issues in the air some of which we may be able to explore together afterwards, and so to my text. It is often the case that a paper's title will give some indication of how clear or how vague a sense of their topic the speaker had at whatever more or less distant point in time they were obliged to commit themselves to one. Seen in these terms, my own title is a dead giveaway. To the extent that I had anything at all in mind when I came up with it, I may have been entertaining a notion that, by making as comprehensive a survey as I could of H's interventions in the manuscript, I would gain a sense of some of the larger contours of his mental landscape. And there may indeed be something of this in what follows. For the most part, however, I have found myself in pursuit, in paradoxical pursuit, as it turns out, of H as an individual. In aspiring to find my way, to however modest an extent, inside H's head, I have taken a course comparable to that adopted by Anne Dooley in the chapter which she devoted to him in her richly provocative study of the time. While distancing herself from the details of Garroid MacOwen's speculations concerning the scribe's identity and date, Dooley commended his Olydia paper for having had, as she put it, the effect of creating the sense of a real person behind the traditional cipher, and thus casting H himself into higher relief than before. And she went on to describe H, on her own account, as a close, or well, i almost say an obsessive reader, profoundly engaged with the materials with which he worked, and indeed, and I quote again, an essential link and an enabling voice in the self-conscious negotiation from one model of heroism to another. So with these impressive antecedents and these half-formulated aims, where to begin? After more than a century of scholarship, what is there left to say about the latest of the hands of Leon One obvious question, in any consideration of the coming into being of L.U., is that of the relationship, or lack of it, between the scribes. And, not surprisingly, this is a question to which scholars have returned again and again. Opinions have ranged from Best's view that the three appear to belong to the same school and are, I think, of the same period. To Tourneisen's portrayal of A as the übergeordnete Persönlichkeit, to whom M was a subordinate, while H worked some two centuries later, and on from there to Oskamp's vision of an M who is as much at odds with A as H appears to have been at odds with M, and of the manuscript itself as having been executed in at least three scriptoria. An adequate re-examination of all of the relevant evidence would go far beyond anything which can be undertaken here, and well beyond my own competence as well. I would, however, like to call attention to what seems to be a continuity of purpose linking all three hands, a concern with eschatology. A wrote the opening of Die Schadefnaan, the most elaborate surviving Irish account of a vision of the afterlife, the text then being taken up and completed by M. Having in this way Adopted the theme from his predecessor, M. alone wrote Eliu's copy of the brief tract, Dovron Flathen Nive, a description of the Day of Judgment and of some of the other tribulations of the end time. Whatever immediately followed M.'s conclusion to Fisch Avavnan, beginning in the same column in which that text ends, was then erased by H. to provide space for Schele Followed by Shele Nehesaki. These are of course homilies on the day of judgment and on the resurrection of the dead, respectively. Not only do these two compositions resemble Fish Adovnoin and and Nive in dealing with the last things, Fish Adhovnoin can for its part be compared with H's two homilies, insofar as it is structured as a sermon, beginning with a scriptural passage and exordium although this is somewhat obscured in the L.U. version of the text, and finishing with a peroration. The one generally accepted date associated with the writing of L.U. is 1106, when one of the scribes, M., in the view of best and of most who have written on the subject since, H., according to Tommaso con and some other scholars, is said by the annals of the four masters to have been killed in the midst of the stone church of Clonmacnoise by marauders. Precisely a decade before, according to the same annals, the whole of Ireland had been gripped by panic, because it was believed that the falling of the feast of John the Baptist on a Friday, in that year, would be accompanied by some annihilating catastrophe. During at least some of the time in which major sections of our manuscript were being written then. A subject matter of these four interconnected texts was a theme of widespread and consuming concern. While there may have been further considerations which led the scribes to pursue, to this extent at least, a continuing program, the contemporary climate of eschatological anxiety must have been a factor. That being said, age betrays no particular interest in L.U.'s eschatological content apart from his writing out of the two homilies themselves. His glosses, relating both to vocabulary and to subject matter, are scattered unevenly but pervasively throughout the manuscript. But he found nothing to remark upon in Dovro and in Fisch Adovneun, where M. inserted two lexical glosses, or even in his own two homilies, even though Scaline includes unusual technical terminology in both Latin and Irish. Of the four other texts written exclusively by H, by contrast, three have glosses. However much or little weight should be placed on this circumstance, it can at any rate be said that these were works which engaged his interest sufficiently for him to wish to clarify their content. While it would be going too far to claim on the strength of this evidence alone, that H did not feel the same kind of interest in the homilies, it is at least fair to say that there is no indication that he did. Potentially, then, there is a certain irony in the circumstance that it is the homilies which have given H his siglum. When he added them, he may simply have been following in the footsteps of predecessors, with whose outlook he was not entirely in sympathy or have been acting in deference to a contemporary preoccupation. In trying to get more of a sense of what really mattered to H, we can turn to the four other texts in Elu, of which he is the sole scribe. others echech Fotha katha knocha, kath and kothoth agas others. Of these, adeth echech Describes events in Ulster. Fotha Katha Knucha is set in Leinster. Kath Karen celebrates both Diermid Mac Iva king of Tara, and the Connacht king Gura Adne. And Kovthoth Leugre is concerned with Leugre, king of Tara. Whatever clues to H's geographical background may be afforded by other aspects of LU, therefore, we are unlikely to find any in his personal selection of secular tales. But let us look at the stories individually and see whether they have anything to tell us. Adath Echech has been carefully analyzed by Helen Imhoff, who proposes that it is, as she puts it, a sophisticated typological exposition of theological issues concerning baptism. This is not the place for a detailed evaluation of her arguments, but it does need to be pointed out that such a typological exposition, if present, depends largely on the manipulation of pre existing sources. As emerges from Imhoff's discussion of the text, and more fully from Ranke Tefriis's new edition, Azeth is to a great extent a compilation. The first section, describing the wanderings of the brother, brothers Ech, Echis and Dre and the catastrophic origins of Loch Ne and Lochri is closely based on the Dinicus accounts of these two lakes, often indeed echoing details of their wording. This account is supplemented with older lore from genealogical tracts and with a prophetic poem whose existence is also reflected in glossaries. Two longer poems follow, dealing with the bursting of Loch Ne, the survival and transformation into a water creature of the Princess Liban, and her eventual capture and baptism. The first of these, for Loch Echech Advadon, survives in a shorter, but evidently independent copy, the National Library of Ireland manuscript G7, while Muirhen is Gen Kamuidh. Is otherwise attested in four manuscripts of the commentary to Fehlere Angese, where it is preceded by a highly compressed account of Liban's capture and conversion, loosely corresponding to the prose narrative which concludes Aded Echech, but omitting a great part of the latter's content. Even apart from these omissions, the Fehlere commentary can scarcely have been Aded Echech's source. For this material. Hordrig O'Rean has shown that the commentary must have been written after 1170, and he sees it as having drawn upon a version of Adad Echer, very close to that now preserved only in LU, as he puts it, rather than vice versa. Despite this, Muirchen Isken Komuidel and some accompanying prose may well have been associated with one or more copies of the Pelere itself before the commentary was composed. Indeed, the poem quotes from the martyrology and invokes the authority of Oingis or Oivlen in its final quatrain. Imhoff makes the intriguing suggestion that the author of Aded Echer was H. himself. Her reasons for advancing this idea, which have to do with the theological subtext which she discerns in the tale, Taken in conjunction with the theological interests which have been attributed to H, seem to me to be debatable. But the hypothesis may be worth considering on other grounds as well. H's only gloss on the prose of Adad-Ähär identifies a place called Tir Klichevire, Agasin Vik Oig, as being the same as Marfin. Here. The source is the prose Dinhanakus, where we are told that Reeve was confronted by Midir, imwig in agaspeshedon tir kriche August agaspedir. Whoever supplied the gloss was consulting the same source that was used by the author, a scenario which could be streamlined if we imagine that author and glossator were in this instance identical whether or not he was responsible for composing Aded Echer, H's inclusion of the tale in L.U. shows that he was interested in lore of this kind. If the mouth gloss is not evidence of authorship, then it means that H took the trouble to consult one of the story's sources in order to, eluc- to elucidate an obscure place name, itself an indication of more than casual engagement. As Imhoff and de Vries have pointed out, there is further evidence to the same effect in H's glossing of the annals of Tigernach in Rawlinson B. 502, where he has supplemented the annalists' account of the bursting of Loch Ne with a reference to the bursting of the lake of Reeve MacMaratha across Magnarthen. This bit of information corresponds precisely with what we find in other Echer. It may be noted in passing that this correspondence indicates that H's glossing of the Annals postdated his work on El. If he had been aware of the additional information which the Annals of Tigernach provide concerning the bursting of Loch Ne when he was writing Ad, he would almost certainly have been moved to make use of this knowledge, if only by way of further glossing. The main narrative focus of Adlut Echer is the fate of Li Ban, a survivor out of the pagan past, her life supernaturally preserved and extended, who comes at last under the protection of saints to whom she recounts her adventures. In these terms, she is a figure reminiscent of Tuon, son of Carol, a fragmentary copy of whose story appears earlier in A.U. The opening is in the hand of A, but the remainder is rewritten in Rasura by H. While A's segment of the text follows the consensus of the other manuscripts, H diverges from this sharply. The most conspicuous difference is the introduction of three late Middle Irish poems, all placed in the mouth of Tuon himself, describing his feelings at finding himself transformed into a stag, a boar, and a bird of prey. There was presumably a poem relating to his existence as a salmon as well, which has been lost together with the rest of the end of the story. H begins his part of the tale with the words introducing the first of these poems, indicating that it was specifically in order to insert the poems that he intervened in the text. The situation is somewhat reminiscent of his first interpolation in Poin for what M had written was erased to make room for the poem Adhu Fervin Firfus Kles. The poems added to Schel Tuorn do not appear to be attested elsewhere. Their net effect is to lend Tuorn a pathos comparable to that of Li Ban's portrayal in Ad Echer. On the strength of both of these texts, H appears to have had not only an interest in lore of the deeper past, but also an imaginative empathy with those who lived on into the Christian period to bear witness to it. Yet another tract dealing with undying rememberers is Kethri Arda in Dovwen, an account of four such figures who were placed in the four quarters of the world to relate the lore and wonders of the world to the race of Adam. The main text is written by M, who has provided two glosses. Between the columns, however, H has contributed a genealogy of Fintan MacBochra, which is otherwise found only, so far as I know, in the version of Ernie Fingen preserved in the Book of Fermoy and Liber Flavus Verduciorum. This too. Appears to reflect a particular curiosity concerning the testimony of the ancients. Although H's copy of the Fenian tale, Fotha Katha Knucha, is not unique, there is another in the Yellow Book of Lecan, an edition of which has been prepared but not yet published by Patricia Kelley. The tale resembles Azith Echer in appearing to be largely a reworking of earlier materials. At various points in the narrative, the author inserts four quatrains from the Linhenneke's poem, Algu Lachen which survives in its entirety only in the Book of Leinster. And much of the wording of the prose is evidently indebted to the same source. Two further quatrains in the text are taken from a poem found early in the tale, Matgniver the Finn. For other aspects of the story, mainly involving the names and interrelationships of persons and some names of territories. I do not, however, know the source or sources. As Kuno Meyer exerted himself to show, stories concerning Finn were already circulating in the Old Irish period, and some of them had survived in later manuscripts. All the same, it seems worth noting that Eliu's copy of Fotha Catha Knucha Is the oldest physical specimen of a Fenian prose narrative that we have. There are no others in L.U. and also none in the vernacular manuscripts closest to L.U. in date, Rawlinson B. 502 and the Book of Leinster. Too much should not be made of this. There are, after all, plenty of Fenian poems in L.L. But even so, H's apparent stepping out of line the standard practice of his day, in order to include this text, suggests that Fenian lore may have been another subject which particularly appealed to him. Further evidence pointing in the same direction may be provided by L.U.'s copy of Alvaro Golem kille H.'s interest in this work was relatively slight. He only provided 14 glosses for it. By contrast with the hundred glosses on the text by M four of those fourteen glosses almost a third are on the poem Ske attributed to Finn or Baskne. here to an extent evident nowhere else in the ten pages occupied by the Elu Avra H found something to engage him there is one further Fenian verse, in the Alvara commentary in L.U., a quatrain placed in the mouth of Gronia. H. has not glossed this brief passage, presumably because when he got to it it had already been supplied with two glosses by M. I cannot find much to say concerning H.'s adding to the manuscript of Kath, Count This is a tale found in three other manuscripts, one of them the Book of Leinster. H has provided only two glosses on the text, despite the fact that, as Stokes noted in his edition, it is full of rare and obscure words. One of these glosses identifies grib as being the name of the horse of Diarmuid Macaitha Slaugna, while the other, on the word Lusta in the following line, was probably only added because H's attention had already been aroused by the horse. The fourth and last of the narrative texts, written solely by H, is Kothoth, Loiger, and Krediv, Augusta Adeth. This resembles Adeth Echer in being attested in no other manuscript, while at the same time, consisting largely of a conflation and development of material known to us from other sources. If Helen Imhoff's suggestion that H was the author of Adeth Echer seems plausible, and the same hypothesis could be entertained of Kolthoth Leuchere. The greater part of the text is a version of the story otherwise known to us as the pseudo-historical prologue to the Shannacus Mar. In an edition of the pseudo-historical prologue published several years ago, I propose that it and Kolthoth Leuchere go back independently to a shared source. Liam Branagh has, however, noted his dissent from such a reading of the evidence, and there could scarcely be a weightier opinion in this area. Fortunately, I do not think that the question has any great bearing on the issues being considered here. The main point is that Kothoth-Leugere is closely based on an earlier work, one which, by contrast with any of the sources Um, any of the sources for H's interpolations considered so far goes back to the old Irish period. The tale preserves much of the early language of its source, and it is noteworthy that H seems to have felt that little in it required clarification. There are only two lexical glosses, bunched within five lines of one another at the foot of the first column. The text has also, however, been modernized in places, with forms suggesting a date little if at all earlier than that of H himself, such as use of the stem d'oron for the preterite active of d'ogni, and of the independent personal pronoun as direct object of the verb. Instead of the concluding paragraphs of the pseudo-historical prologue, which relate how Filith lost the prerogative of acting as judges save in their own affairs, Cothoth Loigre ends the narrative in late Middle Irish of the end of Loigre's reign. The circumstances are essentially those associated with his death in the Bórava, although there is no verbal agreement between the two accounts. This is followed by two quatrains, one cited in the Bórava and in several chronicles, taken from the poem Achóigid Chín, Karebrechruith, by Orthonach Urkoilova, Koilova, and the other from the poem Joldom in Trechte, attributed Flan at Maelweidog. These two quatrains are presented as if they comprised a single composition. The description of Loiger's burial at Tara with his weapons and armor closely follows that in Tirochon's Collectania, without, however, exhibiting any verbal similarities the Irish rendering of the latter in the tripartite life. There is also the bizarre and unpleasant statement inserted close to the beginning of the narrative that the earth, however, swallowed Loigre, the druid, sick the text, through Patrick's word, so that it is upon his head that all the dogs that come into Tara defecate. This seems almost like a parody of tirochon's story. In considering the nature of H's relationship to this eclectic text, a crucial piece of evidence is provided by the third and last of his glosses on it. The specific man whom Loicara and the men of Ireland commissioned with the assassination of Patrick's charioteer, thus triggering the crisis which is resolved by the judgment that is the story's climax, is identified in the margin as Darug, a fosterling of Loigere, it is he who slew him. But the culprit's name was Nudhu can be inferred from the wording of the judgment itself. It is nowhere named in Kolthoth Loigere proper, which indeed omits the text of the judgment, nor in the copy of the pseudo-historical prologue in TCD manuscript 1337, the most conservative version of the story. The one whose wording is closest to that of our tale. The somewhat later version, in TCD 1336, identifies the assassin as Nu'athu Derek, but says no more about him. It is only in the most evolved and linguistically latest copy, that in Harley 432, that we find him described as Nu'athu Derek McNeil, Leuger's brother and a hostage to Loigerer. While well, this is not exactly what we find in H's gloss, for a is described as Loigera's fosterling rather than as his hostage, it is at least analogous. We can compare the tale Tochvark Begola, in which a Leinster prince at the court of the king of Tara is said to be both his fosterling and his hostage. H accordingly had access to another and more developed version of the story, similar to that version which seems to have been most current in the later Middle Irish period, and to have drawn upon it when glossing Coltho-Fleugere. While other scenarios are certainly possible, it seems to me that the easiest interpretation of this state of affairs is that Coltho-Fleugere was not, in fact, composed by H. himself, but that he added the gloss to elucidate a text of which he was only the copyist. As a composite work transcribed by H, assembled quite late despite the age of at least one of its sources, Kothoth-Leugere can perhaps most readily be compared with Fotha Kappa If we are obliged to relinquish the likelihood of H's authorship of Kothoth-Leugere, it may be prudent to consider relinquishing it in the case of Ades echer as well. One further bit of text could probably also be counted among H's contributions to L.U. Having written the end of the saga Shivar Harapad on a page erased for the purpose and before commencing his copy of Kath Karn H provides two alternative genealogies of Kholam. Both of these trace his ancestry back to Kermwed, son of the Dagda. But while one proceeds to give the Dagva the same pedigree which is assigned to him in Lavargavola and other sources, the other, bizarrely, has him descend from Euruvon, son of Mil-Esponia. Versions of this second genealogy also appear in Wallenson B. 502 and in the Book of Leinster. In the former, all but the first six names have, for some reason, been erased. further source of insights into H's interests is the body of glosses, which, as already briefly mentioned, he added to the first fragment of the Annals of Tigernach, which forms part of Rawlinson B 502. While Best thought that he might have detected H's hand supplying a word in Razura on folio three recto, almost all of his contributions occur on just six consecutive pages running from folio 9 verso to folio 12 recto. Most of these relate to the events and personalities of the Ulster Cycle, For he supplies some words for the notices of the death of the poet Persius and of Nero's attempted killing of John the Evangelist. He is rectifying corrupt segments of text, but not adding anything on his own account. Beginning with the birth of Cuchulain. H. goes on to note a hosting of the Toyin. He also expands upon the original analyst's account of the events following the death of Cuchulainn, adding in the margin references to the death of Ever, the slaying of Eric, son of Carabreniafer, and of Lugid, son of Curroy by Conall Cairnach, and to the invasion of the four-fifths of Ireland by the seven manias of Ulster. The amount of detail here is interesting, as these occurrences do not figure in the Ulster cycle material preserved in LU. H. also refers to the Battle of Artech, the story of which he drew upon in LU when writing his conclusion of the saga Tornbow Fliddish, and we've already been hearing something about this. Besides his reference to the bursting of Loch already mentioned, H. adds some comments on the kingship of Ireland, stating that seven years intervened between the death of Connery Moore and the accession of Lughaidh Ryotharek, and adding the acid comment, "Sed Certe Faluntur, to an earlier glossator's statement that some say that the destruction of Da Berga's hostel took place in A.D. 42 rather than in 31 B.C., as had been asserted earlier. H's interest in and knowledge of the Ulster Cycle is obvious from his work in L.U., and so there is nothing surprising in his preoccupation with it here. That he should have confined his attention to these few pages in the Annals of Tigernach is also not particularly remarkable, given that they deal with the years in which the events of the Ulster Cycle are supposed to have taken place. More interesting, is what H does not feel called upon to enlarge on in this period. This was not only the time of Cuchulain and Conqueror, but also the era of the life of Christ, of the missions and martyrdoms of the apostles, and the establishment of the first Christian churches. In none of this, however, does H find anything to remark upon, not even the beheading of John the Baptist, a matter of such acute concern, in the Irish eschatological thinking of the period. For he does comment on a non-Irish entry. It is a secular one. A few lines below his insertion of the phrase, slocheth tóna bo H glosses the statement, I sang of pastures, of farms, of leaders, in Virgil's epitaph, referring to the poet's authorship of the Bucolics, the Georgics, and the Aeneid. In his additions to the Annals of Tigernach, we have, in my own view, telling support for my earlier suggestion that H had relatively little interest in religious matters as such, despite his transcription of the two homilies which were to provide him with a label. After all of this, have we come any closer to getting a sense of H? In attempting to characterize him, it would be a mistake to lean harder on the evidence than it will bear. Thus, we must be wary of the temptation to exaggerate supposedly distinctive traits, as I believe that Anne Dooley does when she describes H's special delight in highlighting and creating disjunctive syllabic etymologies as the most striking aspect of his approach to texts. The technique in question, known as Beylre nederskartha is, of course, ubiquitous in the literature and is discussed as a standard type of diction in Aurigip de I am also not entirely comfortable with Thomas O'Concannon's statement that H, and I quote, seems to have been familiar with the early Irish manuscript tradition, probably more so than either of the original scribes. You may reasonably regard him as a busy scholar rather than a professional scribe. This would seem to imply that H's predecessors were professional scribes rather than busy scholars. But The range of erudition reflected in M's glossing, which could easily provide material for another paper, weighs heavily against any such view. I would be more inclined to say that M and H were both busy scholars, M being a busy scholar with better handwriting. Even if it may be an exaggeration to claim that H was indifferent to religious matters, it does seem evident that his main interests lay elsewhere, in lore concerning the Irish past. To judge from what he has left to us, he had a taste for antiquarian narratives which drew material together from various sources, in the attempt to create more or less coherent accounts of one or another aspect of the past. This kind of literary activity appears to have been widespread in the later Middle Irish period. Other examples which come readily to mind are the multifarious patchwork, that is, Macgnever the and, although in this case, the author brought considerably more creativity to the shaping of his borrowed materials, Scale, Nefier, but he was also sensitive to the aesthetic and emotional dimensions of the legends is apparent in H's fondness for enlivening the verse, especially when that verse describes the inner states of the protagonists. In these proclivities, and in his enthusiasm for the Finn cycle, H appears to have been a man of his time. But he may indeed have thought of himself as belonging to a sort of new wave of Irish antiquarianism, could explain his readiness to erase the work of his predecessors the rude and violent intervention which, whether one deplores or condones it, characterizes him more vividly than any other trait. Although his work in L.U. reflects mainly literary interest in the Irish past, his annotations in the Annals of Tigernach show that the historical veracity of the legends was important to him as well. A weakness for exotic and unorthodox knowledge is suggested by the eccentric genealogies for Fintan and Kukholm. The last word that H wrote in LU as we have it is Jerfrichisch, asked. This is pretty nearly all that I have been doing this morning. I hope that I may have managed to catch some of H's answers.